Welcome to My Best Fail. I'm your host, Diana Lanham, and I am so happy that you're here. Our show is all about transforming failure into success. But sometimes setbacks do not present themselves as a failure. Sometimes it's a life moment that just didn't have the outcome that we expected. But most often, failure and setbacks all lead us to some of our greatest gifts. Please welcome my guest, Kelly Newton. Kelly, I am so happy that you're here with us. Thank you. Before we start talking about the event, um, I want people to get to know who you are. You're a multi-hyphenate. You do a million things. So I'm going to start off with just a couple. <laughs> All right. Um, I know primarily what you do is you are a body-based holistic uh, healer specializing in pain reduction and trauma. And we'll talk about that a, a little bit. Uh, you are a licensed massage therapist. Again, you're a public speaker. You're an actor. You're a producer and a newly award-winning director. I wanted to go in a little bit more about what your primary work is. Um, you are a, a core energetics practitioner and coach. Mm -hmm. But can you talk a little bit more about what that is? It's an approach to personal growth that understands that people operate on five main levels, the body, the mental processing, the emotional state, action, how we choose to move through the world, and our concept of spirit, spirit being basically what's your concept of the universe you occupy and your role within it. And so Core Energetic says if you want true uh, transformation, you have to address all five of those levels, not just your thoughts, which therapy tends to address, or not just your actions, which coaching tends to address, but all five of those levels. Something that you said um, when I was researching this, it stuck with me. I thought it was very powerful. Mm -hmm. And if this is how, if this is a baseline for what you do and what you coach, um, I want to read it because I think it's very powerful. Okay, okay. You had said, that the work that you do finally helped you achieve what years of therapy couldn't do. Mm. It helped you land with feet firmly planted in what I now know to be true. I belong. I am connected. I am loved. I'm able to love. I can access a deep sense of wellness. Life supports me. I have the energy and capacity to succeed. And I can thrive. Mm. I love that. Thank you. Obviously, this is something that you came to. Mm -hmm through the training that you do. But, so is this what I would um, come to you for? Because I, I, I know that you just explained it, but if I'm feeling like I'm not settled, mm -hmm. that maybe I have success, but it's not resonating deeply in me, is that what you're gonna, what is the core work is on? I think a better way to describe it is like, maybe you've tried therapy or coaching and you just still are getting in your own way and you can't quite figure that out why that is it it's a type of work that transcends how your brain thinks and the stories that you tell yourself because it's incorporating the story of your body and the the years of of life's impact on it and how the body has responded and protects you it's it's uh tapping into the way your emotions have protected yourself, the way your actions are 
done consciously and unconsciously in your way, your life, so as to protect yourself and confirm the reality that you have decided is the way life is. Is it unraveling the stories that we've told ourselves to protect us? Yes, okay. exactly. And it's unraveling the defense systems yeah. that you've developed, most of which were developed in your childhood as a response to whatever you experienced back then. Okay. And that you've carried forward into adulthood that no longer serve you. Yeah. So how did you even get there? Like, how did you, I know that you were, you've been a massage therapist for, what, 20 plus years? Yeah. And did that, and, and then the story that we're going to talk about. Right. No, I can um, tell you exactly. There okay. was a pivotal moment. At the time, my daughter was about four years old. And as we'll dive into in this session, at that point in her life, I was so riddled with post-traumatic stress disorder based on what I had gone through with her. And I had gone away with a group of um, five, four or five other women on a little ski trip, just a couple of nights. And in that weekend, I watched myself do the same stuff I have done relationally, I had done in my life relationally up until that point. I pulled myself away from the group. I told myself a story that I didn't belong. I told myself a story that they weren't including me and was causing myself a tremendous amount of pain. And I could see that I was doing that, that there was this thing of like, I both believed they were doing it to me and I could see I was doing it to myself. And I came away from that experience going, I can't continue to live in this reality anymore. I have to do something. So I, I went back to therapy after not having been in therapy for a while and through just a series of um, well, yeah, moments of grace, mm -hmm. came across this woman who was leading a core energetics group and there was one spot left. And I, I went, I signed up, had not met her, just had a little chat on the phone. I was like, I know I need to do this. And I, and I showed up to this group and it was like, that was about a decade ago and it led me on this path. It's almost like you were meant to have that weekend. Yeah. That weekend, it might have taken a little bit longer to get there, right? It definitely was a strange experience of this was a deeply uncomfortable experience that I was supposed to have. It helped to catalyze a very important stage of growth in my life. But that's how life moments happen. Right. Moments that we, if we evolve and learn from, that's mm -hmm. how they happen. And they're usually based in extreme embarrassment or extreme pain and it's just how we move through it and decide to not get crumbled you know crumble by it or you know tuck ourselves in we decide okay I've cried enough or I've hit enough and now I'm gonna move forward that's exactly what I tell so many of the people I work with it's almost like in our culture we we feel entitled to comfort mm -hmm. and demand it take drugs for it and yet it's in the experiences of discomfort and having to hang out in discomfort, the potential for self-transformation yep. is in the discomfort. No, that's, that's what we preach on the show. That's yeah. the whole point of this. You know, my best fell is like, it was the worst of, worst of times for me, but it mm. changed me. It, it made me wiser, better, stronger. And that's how I moved on and that's how I got to my success. Yeah. That actually brings us to mm. Our story right yeah it's how you move through it that defines who you are 
and how you're going to live the rest of your life. Mm -hmm. And that's where your story is. A moment in your life that was you had, you and your husband Jeff had happy anticipation and that it took a turn mm -hmm. that no one would expect, mm -hmm. but that most parents fear. Mm -hmm. right? right? So let's, let's start talking about that. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about um, Zahara. Mm -hmm. Like most hard moments, they turn out to be your best moments or a gift, like one mm -hmm. of the best gifts in your life. Mm -hmm. And we had talked about how that is your journey. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. So why don't you start us off and kind of take us back um, to where you feel like your journey with Sahara began? Because it did begin before yeah. she was born. I married my husband Jeff when I was 28 he was a little older he was 37 and um, the start of our relationship he had said you know I want you to know I don't want kids and I this was before he had even kissed me and I said you know we'll cross that road when we, if we ever get to it and by the time he asked me to marry him he said I'm asking you to marry me knowing that you may want kids and I'm open to that and I'm like okay but the process of getting to yes over having a child took about seven years. I mean, we, we took our time. We actually did couples therapy because we both were ambivalent. And uh, by the time we got to yes, it was a full-on yes. And um, I was a little older at that time. How old were you? I was 36. I mean, that's considered a geriatric pregnancy, which is funny to me. But... So I uh, had an amniocentesis test because I was like, well, my age we need to make sure that genetically everything's fine and came back genetically healthy baby girl. And you're like, great. So she was born in uh, January of 08 and at seven weeks, her eyes started bouncing it's called nystagmus, where the, the eyes just sort of like bounce. And um, so we were sent on Jeff's birthday to get an MRI, a head MRI, to check to see if she had a tumor. No. Oh. I know. Like, here we are, seven-week-old baby. And, um, and it was, you know, I'm not proud of this moment, but it was like, her eyes started bouncing, and I remember being at home with this little newborn, and there was, like, a voice inside of me of, like, I want to give her back. Because, like, th that fear of, like, something's wrong. This is, I'm not prepared, mm -hmm. you know. And, you know, it lasted for all of less than 24 hours, but that visceral, like, oh, no. Yeah, I can't do this. Yeah, like, I... Yeah. I uh, and, and seriously, I was unprepared emotionally. Other than... Everything we're told about yeah. being a parent, that's like what to expect when you're expecting. Here are the milestones. Here's the book you read. Here's how you know how to navigate parenthood. And we all have that fear. Mm. When you first find out you're pregnant, you know, it, it's so joyful. But then there's always that fear. It's like, okay, so what if something's wrong with my baby, right? Right. And I think it's, it, it's even though it's equally as... Um, traumatizing and fearful for both parents you know as the as the woman carrying the baby I mm -hmm. you know I remember thinking if something's wrong with her it's because of me right. it's something that my body's doing or that I'm not doing right. that if anything happens to her 
it's because of something I've done. Oh yeah. Right? And there was no tumor, but they were like, oh, our optic nerves are on the small side of normal in terms of size. Um, but everything looks good. And so we go home. It's like, okay, her eyes bouncing. And then at four months of age, her soft spots started bulging. If you remember anything about, you know, having a baby, there's all this talk like make sure they don't have too much vitamin A can cause a soft spot to bulge. And if it's bulging, you got to go to the doctor because it could be an infection. And, and so we do all that. She goes, we take her to the doctor and they can, the doctor consulted with neurology at Seattle Children's Hospital. No temperature, should be fine. Just monitor it. Okay, so now we have a baby that bouncing eyes, soft spots, bulging. And you know, she's not lifting her head. She's not actually rolling over. We're a part of a PEPS group, PEPS Program for Early Parenting Support. They match you up with mm -hmm. other couples who have babies born within the same month. Well, Jeff and I went from vibing on the sleeping conversations, the eating conversations, but now we're getting together with them and we're like wanting to talk about like, is our baby gonna die? Like, is there something wrong with her? Like, what's going on? And no, everybody else is still on the eating, burping, sleeping. Uh -huh. And so we, we actually pulled out of our group because all of a sudden we're on this different path. And there's no roadmap for it. So she's not meeting milestones. She's got a, a swollen soft spot. Her eyes are bouncing. We're being told that she probably won't see normally, but they don't know why. Anytime we have her checked out, the doctors are like, well, you know, this seems like a disconnected set of symptoms. So I was going down that rabbit hole. Well, I did seal the front porch with this oil-based sealant while I was pregnant. Maybe I messed her up. No. I, I didn't know that yeah. my amniotic fluid leaked out a week before I was induced. You know, it was like, I mean, this might be TMI, but it was like little gushes of fluid. And I thought, whatever, you know, your body's doing weird You're stuff. You're pregnant, yeah, and things yeah, happen. Yeah, so by the time I had the week after the due date um, ultrasound, they said, she's dry in there, we're inducing <gasps> right now. So I was like, oh if I God. had caught that, if I had just known, maybe I could, like, maybe she, I wouldn't have messed her up, like all of that, oh, no. right? We got her vision assessed and it was going down, like... We had it assessed over time and her vision was getting worse. And, um, and then we took her on a trip and I remember looking at her from across the room and seeing that her forehead had this crazy shape to it. And like this memory about a friend's baby that had the skull bones knit together. And so I checked back with the neurologist we had been consulting with, and he said, yeah, you should go to Seattle Children's Craniofacial. It took a month to get into there, and the chief of craniofacial look, took one look at her and said, oh, yeah, she has craniosynostosis. Well, and he did a, had a CT done of her head. He said, we do like 160 surgeries for this a year. You know, we can fix it up. We're really good at this. But there's something else going on. I need to check out like thickness of her bone and like the shape of her abdomen. I'll get back to you. And initially there was this relief that, oh, it's just this weird bone thing. And they do 160 of them a year. Yeah, and, and it's, fine. it's it, like they know what's going on. But then later that day, I get the call from him. He's like, hey, 
Jeff and I are both on the call. You know, I I wanted to call you because I feel like that is the humane thing to do instead of just sending you to Seattle Cancer Care Alliance. I'm just like, Whoa. oh no, um, this is so weird. Like I don't think about this story, and then it. It's such, it is such a huge thing. Yeah. I mean, so you don't ever have to get over it. Yeah, I know. But it's just, it's just interesting. I go back there. It's like, oh yeah, it's still traumatizing. Um, he said, I believe you're, no, okay. <laughs> thanks. I, what I think your daughter has is um, malignant infantile osteopetrosis. I'm like, what the hell is that? And he said, it's a disorder of the bones where it, that causes them to overgrow and um, unchecked. And just like side note, so in our bone marrow, there are osteoblasts that build bone and osteoclasts that reabsorb bone. So our bones are constantly what's called remodeling, okay? So they're building and reabsorbing, building, reabsorbing. And the osteoclasts, they eat away the calcium. They release the calcium from the bone. So it goes into the bloodstream and it nourishes the blood, the nerves, and um, the muscles. And that's how we get our calcium is that it's being released from the bones. And, um, and the calcium that we take, my understanding is it goes towards growing bones. But to get the calcium that benefits us, it comes from releasing from the bones. Um, and in her disorder, the osteoclasts that release it, they eat away at the bones, either are not present or they're not functional. So her bones were growing, growing, growing and not being reabsorbed. So what was happening is that the bone thickness in her skull was getting thicker and thicker and the bones are knitting together. So the soft spot bulging was actually her brain squishing out of her soft spot because it needed more space, right? And her eyesight was getting worse because the overgrowth of bones was crushing the optic nerves, those holes that the optic nerves go through from the eyes to the back of the brain, they closed up. In some babies, the ear canals close up, so they go deaf. Um, and she was low tone and not raising her head and not rolling over because the calcium was not being released into the bloodstream so they could nourish the muscles. If there's a hierarchy of need, for calcium, it's always going to go to the brain first. And, and how so old was it? She was how many months? Four yeah, months? she was eight, nine, eight, eight nine. months when she was diagnosed. And by that time, she was mostly blind, not totally blind. The only known cure for this is a bone marrow transplant. And you and Jeff are not donors. You know, you, you can't be donors because you're half of what she is. And in fact, the combination of you two actually actually created the issue. And the reason why it was not caught in genetic testing is because it happens in like one in 200,000 births. It's at the same rate as conjoined twins. And how often do you see conjoined twins? Oh, wow. Like most doctors will never see a case of myop, malignant infantile osteopetrosis. So the doctors who all looked at her were like, they were just seeing it as disconnected symptoms, mm -hmm. right? And as opposed to a syndrome pointing to a condition, right? Yeah. And um, Seattle Cancer Care Alliance, which has done thousands upon thousands of bone marrow transplants since the 80s when it was invented by Fred Hutch Research Center, 
Um, only at that time, only eight of bone marrow transplants for myop because it's that rare. Oh my. Next thing we know, we go to Seattle Cancer Care Alliance and they, they basically said, well, best possible scenario, 50% chance of success, which meant toss a coin, she'll die or live, right? Okay. And then what they do is they hand us the booklet for how to raise money for it because our insurance plan only covered $250,000 for a bone marrow transplant, but they said, yeah, bone marrow transplants start at 400K. So they've just told us, flip a coin, your, your kid will live or die, and you need to, to throw a bake sale to raise the extra money. Like that literally was in this brochure. Oh my Throw gosh. a bake sale. That's not true. A totally fucking true. Excuse my French. Oh my God. <laughs> but you know what? To have that yeah. conversation with a parent. Oh, it's messed up. But then up. also talk to them while you're going to need to raise money for this. That is really messed up. Yeah. Oh, no. Well, the doctors didn't have the financial. They, they did their thing. They leave. Then the, the woman who's in charge of financials comes in. It so is sorry. so messed up. I'm sorry. We've got problems here. I remember when you blogged about that day. Mm -hmm. My Zoe girl, please stay. Yeah. And that's when I really started really diving deep in mm. following your blogs and, mm. and getting information about mm. it. It just, mm -hmm. oh my gosh. I do want to just, side note, we're calling her Zahara now because she changed her name. Oh, did and, I call her Zoe? Well, oh. I mean, that was her name. Yeah, that's You true. know, and I still sometimes call her Zoe, so yeah. if you hear both names, that's because yeah. she recently changed Zoe her name. Zoe and Zahara, and I am trying so yeah. hard because I love Zahara too. So what um, happened after that moment when you realized that your child it has a 50-50 uh, chance of living. Yeah, it was it was a trip. I mean, just like I have visceral memories of like I'd be changing her and I'd look at her on the, on the um, changing table and it was just this thing of like, I may or may not see you in a year. I have no idea. And there would be like moments where I'd be like, you're definitely staying. And other moments like, I know what song I'm gonna pick for your funeral. Oh my so weird and again no one I knew was going through that support groups for that particular uh, genetic disorder so depressing because you know I would say more than 50% of the kids die oh. yeah and it's just a group of really freaked out parents and not anything that's you know uh, <laughs> supportive well especially if it's <laughs> such a rare a rare condition, and there's, yeah. so there's not a lot of information out there that people can pass around. Exactly. Yeah. We had a, a variation of the disorder that wasn't even mapped before. So it wasn't a legitimate diagnosis, or let's say like a concrete diagnosis. It was more of what's called a clinical diagnosis. So it's like diagnosed based on the collection of sim symptoms. Like there was no case study that matched Sahara. Well, there was no, so what they look at are the genetic markers, and they have, for this rare disorder, they have a certain way that disorder shows up genetically, whatever the variants are. They hadn't identified the variant. 
that she had at the time. So we don't even know if it was genetic or or like a mutation. Oh, right? that's interesting. So, you know. Like nobody else might ever have the exact variation that she had. Well, at it that could have point, just been the two of you together. Yeah, exactly. Know. At that point, I can I can feel where I think my brain blocks stuff off. I mean, I haven't even. You're probably more familiar with my path at this point than I am because I haven't looked at my blog in a very long time. Yeah. And well, there's so much stuff. Oh, I know. On. It wasn't like it was just she needed to have the transplant. Right. Oh, and, she and, needed to have skull surgery. It was happening. Her brain was getting squished. Yeah. And they needed to make space for it. So she had to have what was called a cranial vault surgery first, where they would cut her skull open, make it bigger, however they do that, and then put everything back together with the idea being, first let's give her brain more space, let her skin heal because the skin is the primary defense against pathogens. Because when you have a bone marrow transplant, your immune system gets completely wiped out. Your bone marrow is your immune system. So you wipe out the immune system so you can get a new immune system and hope that it then doesn't turn back on itself. Um, So she had to have Skull surgery first. She's on the operating table, and they realize that she's coming down with a cold. So they stop. Like, they don't move forward. They'd shaved her head. They don't move forward. They um, send us home, and they reschedule for a month later. Because you can't have a major surgery like this and be sick. Yeah. You know? And so a month later... They, um, we have the surgery again. Now, with these cranial vault surgeries, typically a child is home by day four, three or four. It's so routine. This is the surgery that they do that's, you know, 160 of them a year. They, so what happens is they, the plastic surgeon opens up this, the um, scalp the uh, neurosurgeon comes in and dismantles, like cuts open the skull. Well, her brain was under so much pressure inside of her skull. And the poor quality bone and the way it modeled, remodeled. So around our brain is what's called the dura mater. It's like a, a, a sack that our brain floats in because there's cerebral spinal fluid inside the sac dura mater and the brain's in there encapsulated well what had happened and that dura mater actually sits inside the skull so you can you can remove pieces of the skull but the brain is protected by this dura mater sac well in her bone disorder the dura mater sac had gotten embedded into the skull and they didn't know that so what happens is they pull away the first bone and they tear the sack, and the brain comes exploding out. Yeah, no, it's, it's bad. Halfway through the surgery, they call us in, and the neurosurgeon sits down. He's just finished his part, and he looks haggard and ghostly, and he's like, I got to tell you, it's not going well. 
That's it. Yeah. So, but at that point, it's the plastic surgeon saying, you know, job to take the bones and remodel it and put everything back together. And so we honestly didn't know for the rest of that surgery. If she was going to make it. If she was going to make it. If she was even still alive at that point, right? So then we get called in, we sit down, and um, this plastic surgeon comes in, and he has just this, like, relief on his face. And we started crying because it was like, okay, she's alive. It's fine. She's okay. But she, they kept her under sedation for two weeks with a ventilator. Yeah. Because, like, the trauma to the brain was so impactful that they needed to give her brain time to heal they had a spinal tap so that the excess fluid could drain out like it was a big deal but when her brain came out Mm -hmm. even if she survived that and they put it back and fixed it how how do we how do how would you know that that didn't damage her even further we're still finding that out because like if you look at imagery of her brain and the way they do imagery is it's usually top down. So, you, so if you imagine like the top of her head facing you and looking at it, instead of a nice shape like that, it's kind of like, I, I can't even make the shape. It's like curved in. Like oh. this right side, the, the brain died back. Now, according to another neurosurgeon and looked at it, he's like, well, you know, she was a, she's a baby. Neuroplasticity. It could be it has no impact at all. The craniofacial chief was like, hmm, I think there's going to be impact. We'll see. You know, so this is like, you know, currently the million dollar question of like how much of Zahara's quirks is due to the family, you know, prominence of autism, like it runs deep in our family, Um, or is it? A little bit of brain damage? Is it the blindness? Is it just like a nice little mix of all those things? Yeah. I have no idea. And she's incredibly smart. I want to go into um, the amazing person that Zahara is. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also want to talk a little bit more about um, just to you and mm-hmm. how you you managed going through this process mm-hmm. and keeping yourself afloat. Because I know that you had described to me that you said it was a crucible. Right. The whole thing was, yes, a crucible. It was um, really intense. It was just managing all of the ways in which her body was almost giving up the ghost. But there was something about her spirit that kept going, how... I got through it initially was just by really um, how what did you, I get through <laughs> but you know the thing is self-preservation what, what are you gonna techniques do? But what are you going to do it's well, like, I know. are you like, going to just stop smuggling wine into me at Seattle Children's am I proud of that no but it helped yeah. you know yeah. like whatever I'd sit there and watch Lost and drink wine in a cup and yeah it didn't end there I mean and then she ended up getting hydrocephalus and had to have a shunt put in and and she was tube fed through a a, what's called a g-tube a gastro tube because when babies go through an experience like that they lose all interest in eating by mouth so she refused to take in food by mouth so we had to tube feed her and then 
you know, two or three later years later, we had to go through a period where she was trained to eat by mouth, and that was hell. And she didn't start walking until she was four, and she didn't start potty training until she was four, and you know, and she was blind. She was totally blind by that point. Did you? When was the moment, or did you have that moment where you had been through all of this, mm-hmm. and like, did you wake up one day, or were you sitting with her one day, and you were seeing her start to kind of blossom and move forward, or just was there like a a line, like one day she just you started moving forward? Where mm. you, I know that she still has health issues, mm. but when did she start becoming the girl that she is now? There was a point in the hospital when she's recovering from the bone marrow transplant that I was like, oh, she's in her body now. Like, there was a palpable difference in her energy that made me realize how low the spark of life was in her previously prior to the bone marrow transplant and so even though she was still connected to tubes and and IVs and stuff this one particular time seeing her and realizing like okay there's a spark landed in this person when did you start to see beyond we have to give her the best life we can and work with her disabilities. And right, when did you okay. start saying, oh my gosh, not only does she starting to have a personality of her own, which when you meet Zahara, she clearly has her a very right. strong personality, okay. a very fun personality. But when did you start saying, oh, there's, she's got these gifts or she's got these, these things, that she, these joys that she has that are, they're kind of special. It's, I, this is the thing, I, I've never had a kid before, right? So to me, Zahara's typical. You know, so, like, I I get what you're saying, but it's really hard for me because everything, every moment along her path has just been what a kid does. Yeah. And so it takes outsiders going, yeah, that's not normal Mm -hmm. or that's not typical for me to go like, oh, I guess you're right. But, I mean, because she got a keyboard when she was three and she played on that keyboard, the Yamaha keyboard about this big. She played on it every day for like two hours. And she couldn't walk yet, so we'd just put her in front of it, and she would play it, and she taught herself how to play it. So within a couple of weeks of her grandfather sending it to us, I was hearing Twinkle Twinkle Little Star on it. And she was three, four? Yeah. Yeah. She was, she was teaching herself how to play songs just by figuring out, oh, this is how this thing works. And again, she's totally blind. And then by the time she's walking and she's still playing on the piano, like I have videos on the YouTube channel of like she's sitting in a high chair at the piano with her dad. Her dad's playing the lower blues line and she's riffing on top of it and sounding great. Three, four years old. But again, that just seemed normal. That seemed a normal course of events for if a kid is spending two hours on a keyboard a day and they're not distracted by watching screens or other visual things, well, why not? Putting a keyboard in front of a three-year-old mm-hmm. and, you know, hearing them, you know, after a while play Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. I know that you're musical and so is Jeff and your family is, mm-hmm. but that's pretty extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so I hear, but that's my only experience of a kid, right? So when did she start, 
like writing her own music and doing her own songs. How old was she when she? Oh my God, Diane! I I can still play these for you. So, oh, what was she like? Seven or eight? I mean, she started playing her own music quite early, probably earlier than that. But it was about seven or eight years old that I started recording them, and I actually created an album of her first and like songs. Don't eat a mountain. Um, Rooster Red Barn. Um, there's one song, I don't know what's wrong with you, but I love you anyway. Yes, I do. You know. <laughs> so, and she would just belt these out. And so I would just record them. She had already gotten to the point where she could play chords and identify them in minor chords. And and Jeff and I were having this conversation about how, like, you know, she's hit this, it, our daughter's hit this point where she's moving beyond our musical skills. You know, it's like we've got basic, like, theory we need to find a mentor for her and at this point I had already like I would take her into trading musician and she would play on instrument the keyboards there and sing and the people who work there find her very charming and there was this one man working at the time who was he was listening to her and listened to her play the drums and rap and I had Post and I posted a video of her playing the drums and rapping. Wait, she was playing the drums? Yeah, she was playing the drums for the first time ever. Just playing, and it sounds really good. The video's up on YouTube, I think. And and she's rapping on top of it, and she's like seven. And I posted that video, and then this man who was working there, his name was Aaron Walters, he also posted a Facebook post about seeing this blind girl coming in, and he was just like, what is this force of nature? And we had a mutual Facebook friend, and she's like, I think Aaron is posting about your daughter. You guys should know each other. And so we went in, said hello, blah, blah, blah. So this conversation that Jeff and I had, I said, you know, maybe I'll ask that guy, Aaron, if he has any ideas about how to get her some mentorship. And I kid you not. The very next day, in my DMs, Aaron's like, you know, I've been thinking about your daughter, and I just want to offer myself as a mentor to her, because I just see a spark in her that I feel needs to be nurtured. I don't need money for it. I just want to be a mentor. Oh, my gosh. And because of his work with her over the years, he's the kindest, sweetest, goofiest man who is an amazing amazing genius level musician like one of the few people can meet Zahara at her wavelength in music she her musical skills started skyrocketing and so her ability to um write music create music just supercharged and I would often record voice memos of it and one day I sent a a recording of this song she had created about a dog named Cooper to um you know my uh, nephew who's a music producer and he's like you know that's a legit pop song it needs some work but we could get that in here and that became began this whole process of her and I collaborating with each other because I was like, okay, I have the brain function that can create structure to it. She has a brain function that creates like the magic and the inspiration and downloads musical ideas and conceptual ideas and hooks and um, 
all of that. And I just would come in, bring a little structure, yeah. and then I had to make a music video for it so that it could be on YouTube because and, that's a visual medium. And it won some awards. And won awards. Hey, Cooper. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So I love that. I remember Gabby and I watching it for the first time, and Thank we're you. like, "Yeah, Zahara made this," and mm -hmm. you know, and then we were just listening to it, going, "Oh, this is so good!" And we literally walked around for days, going, "Hey, Cooper," and we would sing it to each other. <laughs> it was awesome. Thank I mean, it, it affected us. So. Thank you. So what are her plans? I mean, is she? I mean, I see you guys posting videos um, on YouTube, and I see that. But is, like, how do you see her future going? That's a big question, Diana. Um, I still honestly don't know at this point, like, what the extent of her capacity is. I mean, in some ways, she's so capacious. And other ways, really behind you know, so I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Like, this is the thing. I have, I have no clue. There are no roadmaps for parenting a, a person such as her. Um, like you say, she's savant level in her musical skills. And she's um, also in special ed classes because her learning style is very different. She, she's slow. Then, like, she's getting an A in gen ed Spanish class, right? She's going away to the School for the Blind in uh, September. It's a residential school. She'll be home on the weekends. And um, the School for the Blind, the Washington State School for the Blind, um, sees itself as primarily a life skills training, you know, program, which she needs. Jeff and I have not been up to the task getting her completely up to speed on where she needs to be as a 15-year-old human being. I mean, have there been projections? Will she be able to live by herself or will she always no have idea. to live in, in an assisted living? I yeah. have no idea. Yeah. This is the thing. Like, this is the million-dollar question. Yeah. I have no idea. She, she is not as independent as a typical 15-year-old girl. Yeah. Not even remotely at the same level. Um, but she does have the capacity to learn and move forward and grow and expand her skill set. She just does it on a very different timeline and a di very different roadmap. Yeah. It's, it's so seductive to just have answers. Yeah. So that we know how to strategize. So we have comfort. So we have comfort. Exactly. Yeah. And so it is so easy. I have to keep reminding myself not to put her in a box, mm. right? Yeah. Because if I could just put her into a box, then I would know what the plan is and how to you know, negotiate it. But it yeah. does not do her, it's a disservice to her for me to try to put her in a box. Yeah. And my daughter said to me, she said this when Zahara was younger. Mm -hmm. Like she was, I think... I don't know if she was like four, five, six, seven, that age range and stuff. And Gabby said, 
Zahara is very lucky that Kelly and Jeff are her parents. Mm. And I said, well, what do you mean, right? And she said, I just have always thought, you know, she goes, they do the massage, and so they're always, like, in touch with everything, and they're always looking for a bigger, broader reason for things. And um, she's just fascinated by how mm -hmm. you guys think. Mm -hmm. And she just felt that Sahara was very lucky that she was going to be raised around people. Mm. She didn't say these words, but I'm going to use your words to describe it, mm -hmm. that aren't going to put her in a box mm. and may label her as um, mentally Mm. disabled right. and make sure that she's in a mentally disabled school or, right. or they don't right. further her life in mm. any way. Mm -hmm. They're just trying to make let her survive and mm -hmm. keep her healthy, right? Mm -hmm. But there's more to life than that, oh, totally. right? And so I just wanted to pass that on to you yeah. because uh, from the outside, people you look at, at her mm -hmm. as a reflection of the two of you as well. Mm. Yes, she has her own personality. Yes, she has these gifts that are mm. amazing, right? But she also has the two of you guys um, growing her, nourishing her, pushing her forward, and also just being an ally to her mm. and a companion, right? Mm. And mm. that's how it looks like from the outside, mm -hmm. just so mm. you know. So sometimes when you're like, you know, I don't know what the hell I'm doing, mm -hmm. and am I, you know, are we doing her any harm by not letting her do this or whatever? Mm. From the outside, it looks like you guys are doing an amazing mm. job. Being a parent, related to my experience of being a parent. Like, the person I was prior to the experience of Zahara, small-minded, small-hearted, small capacity. Um, and I don't say this with self-hatred. I say, that, like, let's, let's put it this way, limited. Limited in... Uh, mental construct, limited heart, limited capacity. Um, I would say brittle, brittle mental health. Mm. Never anything diagnosable, but like brittle. Okay. And so when she was like, a baby and we're still newly in this um, experience all of that limited personal capacity was biting me in the ass like I was suffering I was suffering it was not what I wanted as a parent it was not what I had signed on I was resentful okay and my heart was broken like because I was in love with this kid right mm -hmm. I mean this is my baby this is my beloved and that limited aspect of myself, raging, grieving, chest pounding, like, why me, right? Mm -hmm. And somebody said that to me at an Easter brunch. Your daughter's so lucky to have you. I about bit her head off mm -hmm. because I was pissed. I was just like, don't fucking say that to me. It's not what I want to hear. And... The about face and the process of like having her and then that leading me to that moment where I like with those women at that ski trip where I was having a familiar experience that was part of my brittleness of like this story of I don't belong. I'm apart. I'm broken. Something's wrong with mm -hmm. me. And it's other people's jobs to make me better. It was like. I could see myself creating that for myself because something about that experience with Sahara was waking me up to my own limited experience of self. And so that began this process of deeply 
healing those places in me that needed to be healed and expanded and made more resilient and more flexible and more open-hearted and um, such to the point where I just this last summer, I don't know how controversial this is to mention this, but it's like I happen to have deep like uh, enthusiasm for um, plant medicine. So I had done a personal journey involving psilocybin and just in that deep dive got that, oh my God, Zahara was like medicine and she came to me because I needed it. Like, I mean, yes, good for her that she has us as parents. I hope good for her. But it's like I didn't see so crystal clearly until that moment of like the grace involved in her landing in my life. Like I was missing from my own life. And her arrival called me out and called me into a better version of myself. Mm -hmm. And... And continues to call me out. Because when I'm small and I forget my capacity, I can get tight in parenting her. But when I remember that it's like, no, she's calling me to the best version of myself, then my heart opens and I expand. And it's just like, of course, she's nothing but a gift. I love that. Thanks. I knew this was tough. Mm. I know it was emotional. Mm. I mean, I didn't live it, but it was it was killing me. It was mm. yeah. But I just I know it was so hor I don't want to say horrible. It was so difficult. It was difficult. It was to have yeah. that to have that happen and then mm. to find to to go through it. I'm sure when you're in it, when you're in it, mm. you're just there and you, you know, you don't mm. you just do whatever you can mm. to survive and you pull on all these resources that you didn't know you had. And you just put one foot in front of the other. It's so cliche, but it's so true. You go to bed, you get up, you do the yeah. same thing, you go to bed, right? But now that you've kind of gone through, I mean, you know, hopefully you will never have to repeat that again, even if she has more things happen, but it won't be to that extent, right? It's possible she, I may outlive her. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Okay? Like, the odds are greater than, you know, you outliving Gabby. Let's put it that way. Yeah. I mean, accidents happen, but that's just the fact. Of parenting yeah. her. The difficulty has not stopped and will not stop. The deep trauma is on pause right now and may it always be on pause. Yeah. But it is continually an ongoing journey of am I going to tighten and get resentful or can I loosen and open my heart and feel the grief and the love that are right there together? I feel like. Even when you've got something going on and you're not happy, mm -hmm. this is the happiest you've ever been. Mm -hmm. I've known you. Mm -hmm. And you, you look different. You talk different. Mm -hmm. You just have a different outlook on life. Zahara was the gift that you needed, just oh, like you said. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm still sorry that you had to go through that. Honestly, Diana, if I didn't go through that, I think I would be really fucked up right now. Like, in a way that... I would be in a different sort of pain 
of pain of not knowing how to connect with people, not knowing how to feel like I belong, not knowing how to take responsibility for myself, yeah. my well-being. Yeah. You know, and that's a direct result of parenting her. So I'm not sorry. Yeah. You know. That's awesome. And I still grieve missing out on what I imagine would it be like to have the experience you have. How you have come out, not on the other side because you're not there yet, but just how you are right now and the self-realization you had about who you were and who, how you wanted to grow and who you wanted to be. Mm. There are a lot. We know that. I mean, you're in the habit of coaching these people. A lot of people don't get there. Mm. And I think that I think it's amazing. And I, I know that you, you always, uh, whatever, and you wave it off. But who, how you've come, come through this whole journey is absolutely amazing. Mm. And when you know that when, when you're not sure about it, all you have to do is look at Zahara and see what an amazing girl that she's, woman, young woman that she's become. Seriously. Mm. You know, she's, she's who she is because of, of all that DNA that, you know, sometimes, you know, got yeah. all, you know, you know, restructured and didn't turn out. But she's also a very gifted child. That doesn't mm. happen to a lot of, of people, mm. right? Mm. I mean, you're the parent of a gifted child. You're mm. also the parent of a mentally disabled child, mm -hmm. right? Or we don't know to what extent. Yeah, I right. mean, I hate saying yeah. mentally disabled. Yeah. It's just like she is a complicated case. Yeah. Think about it this way. She has learning disabilities. They don't say mentally disabled. Like, is, is dyslexia mental disability. Oh, I see what you mean. Okay. So she has a learning disability. She has learning disabilities. She has some cognitive challenges in, in and this is not woke, whatever. It's not a diagnosable mental disability. Yeah. This is the thing we've had her evaluated by DDA. She doesn't qualify. It was like, she's like too mentally abled. I, you know, is that everybody wanting to feel special? Is that me trying to make her special? I don't know. I don't care. All I know is when I put her into a box, I stop interacting with her as she is and I start interacting with the box. Yeah, I get that. And I don't want, I want people to just see her as she yeah. is and respond to that. And to be honest with you, when I think of somebody who's mentally disabled, mm -hmm. I think some, of somebody who's had very severe brain trauma and damage, mm -hmm. like very much like needs mm -hmm. help doing right. everything and stuff. Mm -hmm. And that is clearly not where Sahara is. Yeah. So I am just, I'm not going to use the language. Okay. Right. I'm just not going to. So thank you for correcting yeah. me on that. I'm glad that you did. I appreciate mm -hmm. that. What is something that you wanted someone to say to you? Like if you could say something to someone going through this and at early stages. If somebody's telling you, about the intensity they're going through, don't ever say, oh, I'm sure it'll be okay. Oh. Okay? Meet them where they're at. Say, wow, that sounds really hard. That I'm, I don't know what to say. That's really hard. If you don't give voice to that part of you that says, this is not what I wanted, that voice doesn't go away. It just goes underground and it gets really strong and it comes out sideways and it will work against you. Yeah. It would have been really great where there are people in my life at that point that says, tell me more about your grief. Tell me more about what your anguish is. 
and it, anything is okay. I won't judge you. Grief is such an integral part of love. We love, we open ourselves to grief. We're always going to lose what we love. And sometimes we lose it before we realize or before we imagine we're going to. And so allowing the, the energy and the experience of grief to move and flow makes us more available to our love. Right? And so that's the biggest thing that I could say to anyone supporting anybody going through trauma is make it okay for them to share their grief. You know, like all of the dark voices that they think are not okay to admit. They have to be able to say those things. Thank you so much for doing this. I know that it kind of put you through the ringer to relive it. And I just, I appreciate you. Thank you. This was awesome. It was powerful. And I can't wait for people to hear it and be touched by it. Also, I also want you to tell us, and we'll put it in the links too, but tell us where we can, um, you know, visit your social media, visit Zahara's social media, because mm-hmm. I want to make sure people um, just uh, get to hear more of your story and also get to see her and her fabulousness. Oh, she yeah. Is. Yeah. So we'll make sure <laughs> those are more all more in fabulous. The, yeah, she is. Mm-hmm. So we'll make sure that's in the links. And, um and just thank you from the bottom oh, of my heart. I did want to say we didn't touch on her 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 name change. Oh, that's right. And just because it's so perfect, because like I didn't even know this when we named her Zoe. I didn't even look at the meaning of her name. I just knew I liked the name. And when she was going through her bone marrow transplant, a young um, niece of somebody following the blog said, whose name was also Zoe, she said, make sure they know what her name means. And her name means life. Zoe means life. So she's going to live. This was from a nine-year-old named Zoe. And then what's crazy is um, she changed her name to Zahara last year. And, And this came out as she's half Jewish. Her father's Jewish. And it came out of this conversation at a bar mitzvah, prior to a bar mitzvah, about Hebrew names. And she was wondering why she didn't have a Hebrew name. So someone gifted her a Hebrew name at that meal, and they said, your Hebrew name is Zahara. And a ripple went through the people at the table. It was just like you could feel the impact of the power. And within a month, Zoe had decided that she'd changed her name to Zahara. That was her new name. And we looked up the meaning of Zahara, and it means she who shines. So moving from a name that was anchoring her in life and now that she's firmly anchored, now she's shining. I'm just like, God. oh my God, yeah, that's yeah. A, she definitely, she does. Have, she is born under a shining star. <laughs> Thanks for coming today. Thanks, Diane. All right. Hmm. I need tissues. <laughs> <sighs> okay, cut. <laughs> Do you have a story that needs to be told? Send us an email at contact at mybestfell.tv. If we think it's a good fit, we'll reach out. Today's episode of My Best Fell was created by cinematographer Aaron Castillo, sound Brian Binning, gaffer Stephanie Jones, makeup Marissa Loya, and catering by Sarah Bailey. 